my friend's name was Nadine. And I had a dream about Nadine and it was like, it was just the strangest experience. You know, I was like at this airport mm-hmm. and I was like sort of choosing between different paths. It was very fascinating. You know, she was there. She wasn't saying anything. It, it was just sort of seemed like she was happy and at peace. She was smiling. Like there was nothing wrong. And it's almost like I was the one that was a little bit like jarred or like, what's going on? What am I doing here? Like she's all calm. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> And I look over to my right. It's a very vivid dream I had. I look over to my right and like I see like a departure gate and like the plane's taken off and we got to get out of here. And then I look over to my left and I see a long hallway, not sure where it goes. Not like a dark and scary hallway. It was actually quite brightly lit. And the further I looked down the hallway, the brighter the light was actually. And I was like, do I, you know, do I get on this plane and leave or do I walk away and walk down this hallway towards this light? And I walk towards the light. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Ryan Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on The Sue Podcast. Grace Swain is an Indigenous artist, advocate, and entrepreneur. She is from Swan Lake First Nation Treaty 1 Territory and currently lives in Bruce Station, Ontario. She is known for her TikTok, where she has over 175,000 followers and talks about spirituality, wellness, and mindset. She is also the business owner of Anishna Babe, Inc. I like that name, very creative, where she offers business coaching, content creation, and lead generation services for product-based and service-based businesses. Grace has also been accepted to be part of an exciting opportunity to be a facilitator with Changemaker X Change, where she will be attending an in-person facilitator training in Italy in March. CXC is an organization that creates inclusive communities where changemakers come together to protect the planet and our environment. Through this organization, she has created an online art program that aims to remove economic and systemic barriers for professional Indigenous female artists to create and sell their traditional art. In this program, they learn how to access land-based materials, resources, knowledge, and financial assistance to create and sell traditional art. This program received over 900 applicants, and she loves keeping on going and supporting more Indigenous artists through her work. Welcome, Grace. Hi, thanks for having me. It's very exciting to have you on the show. I'm so excited. I love the setup. (laughs) We like it too. We put a lot of effort in the lighting and lighting and camera angles. (laughs) You don't get to see stuff like that in the Sioux very often. (laughs) No, I was on like a radio show one time when I went to Pine Ridge, South Dakota, but wasn't as fancy with the headphones and (laughs) microphones and everything. (laughs) When I saw your post uh, on Facebook and you were sort of reaching out to the local Sioux community and you were saying, look, uh, this is what I'm about. This is the work that I do. It was one of those like support local businesses groups. So it's very much consistent with the theme and the content of that Facebook group. It's, it's why I joined and I followed that group because I, I want to connect with people who are doing interesting things in entrepreneurship and small business. So I saw your post and you're like, you know, I got accepted to this program. You know, I, I have plans to travel to Italy and I've built this platform, you know, based around this theme and this message. And as I was reading this, I was like, gosh, we got to get Grace on the show. Like she seems like she'd have a lot of interesting things to talk about from a perspective that I've personally never been exposed to. 
that I'd be really interested to learn about. And I imagine a lot of our audience would be interested to learn about as well. So, so tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I always introduce myself in Ojibwe. So, Buju, Ani, Grace, Indigenous, Makwan, Dodam, Swan Lake First Nation, and Dunjabra, Bruce Mines, and Dodanago. So, what I just said is Hi, my name is Grace. I'm Bear Clan from Swan Lake First Nation, and currently I'm living in Bruce Mines, Ontario. But I technically I live in Bruce Station, but I always say Bruce Mines because, you know, people don't know where Bruce Mines is. So, trying to explain where Bruce Station is, a even bigger stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you sent yeah. me the text, you're like, I'm, I'm on my way from Bruce Station. <laughs> I look over at Tracy. I was like, where is that? I'm like, that's, that's like near the Sioux, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's not too far from the Sioux. <laughs> that's near Thessalon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not I mean, as it's far the, as Thessalon, but. <laughs> yeah, about 45 minutes away yeah. from the Sioux. Yeah. yeah, we're always making the trek back and forth, so it feels like nothing to me and my boyfriend now. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we were having our pre-show discussions, you told me that you do have a connection to the Sioux, though. I mean, right now you're yeah. living in, sorry, what was it again? Bruce Station? <laughs> Bruce Station. Okay. Yeah. Right now you're living in Bruce Station, but tell us about your connection to Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah, so I grew up in Bruce Mines, and then when I got to high school, I moved to the Sioux with my mom. So I went to Superior Heights for a year, but most of my education was at St. Mary's. So shout out to St. Mary's, love that (laughs) high school. So I spent the majority of my teen years in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and it was really awesome. There was so much support from the community and Especially I went to St. Mary's and I got involved with a lot of extracurricular activities. I found that, you know, so many people would give you so much help and support and it was just like a great place to be. And I always loved running and the outdoors. So being surrounded by the nature and the trails, especially as an Indigenous woman, you know, my community on my father's side is like a two day drive away in Manitoba. So having those Indigenous connections here as well has always been really awesome. What is the uh, community on your father's side? So my father's from Swan Lake First Nation, as I've said earlier. Um, So that's in Manitoba. So my father grew up on reservation, but he raised all of us off reservation. And my mother's from Wakamakong First Nation, which is only three hours away from here. It's on like near Manitoulin Island. So when we were kind of growing up, we both were living, you know, off reserve as my parents were too. So my dad, once we kind of grew up, moved back to his reservation. And that's where all my grandparents, my aunts, my cousins are on his side of the family. So that connection has always been there, but we've definitely been reconnecting a lot in the past couple of years with him moving back. So that has been really awesome too. Great. Very cool. Very cool. Sorry. you're So you were in the middle of telling me about the work that you do and then I I went off on this thing about Bruce Station. <laughs> Sorry about that. So no, that's continue. okay. That's awesome. Yeah, I find that I have a lot of connections to so many different areas. So it's great to explain that right off the bat because right. it can be kind of confusing. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so as for my work and what I do, I find that I'm in a lot of different areas of expertise. So that's why I've kind of narrowed it down to kind of say like influencer, indigenous advocate and entrepreneur because a lot of people in this area especially know me for my main business, which is called Anishina Babe Inc. So in that business, I started when I was 18 years old. I'm 23 years old now. Wow. And through that business, I just really wanted to work online. I wanted to be my own boss, my own entrepreneur. Right. So through that, it's been so much fun. You know, I get to work from home and work with people from all over the world. So I create content for their businesses, videos. And when I first started my business, TikTok wasn't even a thing. When it did come out, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to hop on this. So I grew that pretty quickly, which kind of helped back up my business because then a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners were like, hey, I don't know how to make videos. I don't really understand this. So I really hopped in and started creating content for them. 
Then I also do business coaching. So alongside that, just showing them how to do it themselves in their right. own business. And then I also do some lead generation services for coaches and service-based businesses too. Right. So if someone comes to you and they're like, look, I'm thinking about starting my own business. I've always been fascinated by entrepreneurship, the idea of, you know, sort of controlling my own time and my own destiny and not necessarily being tied to a nine to five job, stuff like that. And they come to you and they're like, you know, what are the first few things I should keep in mind as I start this journey? What is this going to look like for me? And that kind of thing. Like, I'm sure you get questions like that all the time. Like, so let's say hypothetically, someone comes to you and asks you something like that. What would you tell them? I love this question. (laughs) Okay. Um, My go-to answer is I always say start before you're ready. And the reason why I say that is because I think the biggest part about starting your own business, you know, people think it's going to be the money or the investment or the time. I would honestly say it's the mindset to just start because we are really in our own way and in our own heads. So afraid of what other people are going to think of us, our friends and family showing up online Nine times out of 10, the biggest obstacle I face when I first work with people is they're just afraid to post on social media. Like they're afraid to say like, this is my business. This is what I'm doing because of that fear around their family and their friends just judging them. So I just help people overcome that mindset block. And I would say that's one of the biggest things when you're first starting. And how would someone overcome that mindset block? Like what would the tips be that you would have for them? So like I said, (laughs) start before you're ready. So I always say dive into it. Like when I did my first live, you know, I was in my dorm room. I went to Western University in London, Ontario. Okay. And when I was in my dorm room, I was terrified. I was on Instagram. I was going to do an Instagram live. And I just remember shaking. Like I was so nervous to do this live. Now I love guest speaking. I love doing lives. I love being on, you know, social media and being active there. So I always tell people it gets easier the more you do it. When you first start, it's going to feel really scary and that's completely normal. Right. So I always say that's one tip. Another tip that I always have is to go live with someone else. So whether you're going on Instagram or on TikTok or you're doing guest speaking, it helps to have someone else there to organically have conversation with right. um, because then you don't feel like you're just talking to yourself in a screen. Yeah. So that's another tip I always give to people too. Cool. It's making me think about this experience that I had when I was very early in my own entrepreneurship journey. I had just gotten my license to practice law. I was, I was a freshly minted 26-year-old lawyer and I really, really wanted to start my own law firm. The idea, it wasn't so much about like, you know, living that Hollywood lifestyle that you see on TV shows like Suits and stuff like that. It was more just the idea for me of being able to sort of control my own life. You know, I didn't want to be tied down to to a job working for someone else. I wanted to work for me. So, you know, it's funny what you mentioned, how there is some consideration of how other people close to you are going to react to that decision. Mm-hmm. I can definitely say for myself, when I made that choice, you know, my, my parents looked at me and they were like, you're out of your mind. Like, we don't think this is good, right? Like, you should go work somewhere for a while. Mm-hmm. You should further develop your skills. You're very early in your career. And once you have more experience and some more credibility and stuff, you know, think about starting your own firm later on down the road. And that's not bad advice. I imagine a lot of lawyers do that. But it it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I thought to myself, well, you know, I I can still focus on learning. I can still focus on growth. I can still focus on obtaining experience and getting mentors and learning while being self-employed from day one. Mm -hmm. And just be very honest with my clients about, you know, this is my level of experience. If you want to hire a lawyer with more experience, you can go find one. But if you want to hire a lawyer with this level of experience, I'm your person for that. And that was just one of the best career moves I've ever made in my life, looking back, I'm so glad that I did that. So I think the whole idea of like starting before you feel entirely ready, I feel like I did that and it worked out amazing for me. So I I followed your advice many, many years before I ever even met you. (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that 
you know, I always give that advice because it's something that I resonate with too. Because when I first went to university, I had this idea, oh, I'm going to be a dentist. And I know we had talked about this before, but just for the listeners, I had always said, oh, I'm going to be a dentist. And I think it was just engraved in my mind from a very young age that the only way you can make money is if you're a dentist, a doctor or a lawyer. And neither of my parents had gone to university. I think, you know, my dad had gone to college and he was the first generation in his family. So my sister and I were the first generation in our family to go to university. So That was all they kind of were taught, right? So when I went to university in my first semester, I was like failing half my classes. I ended up dropping out of that program entirely. I was in science because I was like, oh, I'm going to be a dentist. And I realized really quickly that, you know, I didn't really love science. It wasn't what I was personally passionate about. But what I was passionate about was the idea of being my own boss, being an entrepreneur, having my own team. So once I realized, okay, that was what I was chasing, then I kind of switched out of that. And I just followed that dream, started my business right away so that after university, I could just pursue that full time. You know, exactly what you're saying. There were so many people who were telling me, like, that is such a bad idea. You're not going to make any money. What are you doing? Hiring mentors in that field. Like, you're a student. You don't have a lot of money to begin with. You have right. student loans and debt. Right. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to start now, like, before I'm ready. Yeah. So that by the time I graduate, you know, I'm not years behind. I'm kind of ahead. So, yeah. And in just, what, like five years of this journey, it seems like you've come a long way. You seem very confident in what you do and you've built these platforms. As I read through the Facebook post, going back to that topic, I just visited a few of your platforms and stuff and just learned a little bit more. Like I didn't just read the post and be like, oh, this is great. Like I went to different places that you sort of directed people to. And then I was like, you know what? I think I want to take some of the the funds from our podcast, some of the operating budget from this business that we're running and use it to support the work that you're doing. So the Sue podcast is one of your supporters. And we're helping you to your facilitator training in Italy. Tell us more about that. That's really exciting. Yes. I, I would love to go to Italy. I've never been. I, like I've been to other places in the world that I've, I've talked about on this podcast, but like definitely Italy is on the list. Yes, I'm so excited. And thank you so, so much, Chima Gwech, for being a sponsor and supporting me in that. That's been so, so helpful. But yeah, so I actually had gone to a previous training with CXC where I went to New York that was my first time going there too. So a lot of traveling with this organization. But funny enough, it came up in a Facebook ad. And I'm all about manifestation. And on my vision board, I actually had on there, go to New York. So I wasn't sure how it was going to happen or how it would kind of come into reality. But came up through that ad. And they were just saying that they were looking for change makers or people passionate about helping the earth and the environment. And I said, oh, man, this is me. Like, I need to go and apply for this opportunity. So I applied. I got accepted. I went to New York and it was really incredible. I met so many like minded individuals and youth and women who are just on the same journey. You know, it can be really isolating starting your own businesses, your own nonprofit and doing that work. So through that connection, I met someone else who had leftover funding in their organization. And they said, hey, like, do you want to use this for your kind of programming your funding and I said yes absolutely so that was <laughs> of course when, yeah I was like who doesn't so I whipped together this program because it had to be done by certain timelines so we just finished wrapping that up but it was really incredible and essentially it's this four-week online program that helped indigenous women just remove those economic and systemic barriers to help them with their art I've loved art I've always been really into art and I come from a family of artists as well And I found that over the past couple months, you know, getting into art, if you don't have those tools, 
really at your fingertips is really difficult because they're really expensive. It's hard right. to access resources. And right. especially for a lot of indigenous peoples who, you know, live in remote communities or they don't have access to Wi-Fi and they can't watch tutorials. So, yeah, so we started that program and we had indigenous guest speakers come on and a lot locally as well, which was really awesome from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Amazing. And they were just teaching other indigenous artists how to sell their art online. I, of course, talked about social media and marketing online. <laughs> Amazing. But we had other guest speakers coming on and just teaching traditional teachings as well to help people reconnect with the culture and the land-based art and how they can integrate that in their art. So it was a really awesome experience. So through this program, I'm just hoping to keep it going and CXC has been a big part of that too. Traveling for your career is just one of the most exciting things. I've done it before. For me, I was very, very passionate for a long time. There was a chapter in my life. I'm done with that work now, but there was a chapter in my life where I was very much into TED Talks. And cool. I was a, a TEDx organizer. I've mentioned it on a, another episode of this podcast. So I'm not going to dive into it all <laughs> over again. But for the sake of this conversation, like I traveled to Alberta for a, a conference where TEDx organizers from all around the world were there. And we were talking about sort of like the future of what that was going to look like. It felt like you're part of this global movement where for me, it wasn't my day job. It wasn't my primary career. It was a passion. It was a hobby. And I'm taking that hobby and buying a plane ticket, going to this faraway place where I don't know anybody and meeting these really, really incredible people. I was thinking about that experience that I had as you were telling me about your trip to New York and just that atmosphere. Right? I'm assuming that was New York City, not just the state of New York. But like, yeah, New York City. Yeah, <laughs> and I've, I've never been to New York City. I'd love to go. I've sort of escaped the big city life as I moved from the GTA to Northern Ontario because I wanted like a simpler life. But like I think for a, sort of like a vacation or, or maybe like working vacation, that would be a really, really fascinating place to go. And I just imagine being in that environment doing the kind of work that you're passionate about. And that must have been really exhilarating. Yeah, it was awesome. So I went to New York City and they actually drove us a couple hours outside the city to like a retreat center to be in nature because oh, wow. we are, of course, you know, advocates cool. for the earth. So that was really, really awesome and just connecting in that capacity. But I took a few extra days to just explore New York City while I was there because I had never been before. And my mom actually surprised me and came with me for those last few days. So nice. we got to spend some time there. And that was her first time there too. So it was really cool. That's very cool. You were telling me about uh, an organization that took an interest in your work and they said, you know, we've got some extra funding. Uh, we want to help support this. Tell me more about what that looked like. If you can, like what the name yeah. of, it, of their organization was, how that all came about, what you ended up doing with the funding. You know, that's, I think a lot of people would find that interesting. Yeah. So it was really awesome. So that's actually based out of Toronto was the woman who had reached out to me. And it's through their organization called Innovate My Future. And I can send you like more information on them to go cool. and support them and check them out. Okay. But yeah, it was a really awesome organization that's passionate about supporting the earth. And essentially what they do is they help other young people from across Ontario with their nonprofits and their efforts and their organizations. So whether that has to do with protecting the earth or in my capacity, you know, helping Indigenous women with the land-based art whatever capacity it kind of went into. And they also help with social justice issues as well. So they've helped a ton of people with their projects, like just across Ontario. So they have a lot of cool work going on in their end of things too. That's really cool. But yeah. And the organizer who I'd met in New York City, her name's Nicole. She is so cool. Like, Hi, just, Nicole. Yeah, she is <laughs> such an amazing woman, just really passionate about helping the earth, helping the planet. And 
it was incredible because she's also so young and just seeing the work that she's doing and starting her organization and just, you know, helping so many other people with theirs really inspired me in my work as well. When I came back to Ontario and just kind of thinking about, okay, like I have my business, I have what I do, but how can I, aside from that, use it to give back to my community? Because being Indigenous, we always talk about giving back to your community, helping other Indigenous peoples and kind of looking at the greater picture. And I always talk about the seven generations teachings, how Indigenous peoples are always looking seven generations ahead, which is crazy to think about. But it's the idea of essentially protecting the planet and our people so that selflessly helping other, you know, Indigenous peoples down the road, not just Indigenous peoples, but our earth and our planet and the people who we're never even going to meet. So I like that. This You call it the seven generations teachings? Yeah. So it kind of comes back to the seven grandfather teachings as well, but we always call it seven generations, just thinking seven generations ahead. I'd say I've, I've never heard of any of this stuff and I find it so fascinating. So like the idea is, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's sort of like a a cultural value where you look at, okay, the, the work that I'm doing and the impact that I'm having in my life, you know, how is this going to impact my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren. Like you're, you're looking at a timeline that's just so much larger than what we would sort of be accustomed to in North America. I feel like, in, you know, traditional sort of North American society, we think about, you know, the next generation. We're like, you know, I'm going to set up my, my, maybe it's my personal wealth or whatever so that my children are taken care of. But that's sort of where it stops, you know. Like, and then, of course, your grandchildren, whatever. But like you don't, after the time horizon sort of reaches the end of your own life, people sort of, seem to, I guess, I, I don't know how I would put it. Like they certainly wouldn't be thinking seven generations ahead. At least that's just not the climate that we're raised in, right? Like I find that very fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And I talk about this a lot too, so I don't want to go too much into a tangent, but right. I always say, you know, there's this colonial versus decolonial way of thinking. And Indigenous peoples, we always think in the cyclical sense, whereas Western society thinks in a very individualistic nature. So exactly what you're saying, how we'll think about you know, our children, maybe our grandchildren, but then that's it. It kind of comes back to the idea of everyone for themselves, you know, that individualistic nature. Indigenous peoples and what I've been taught in my culture is thinking about not just yourself, but your community and, you know, understanding that we're stronger together when we support each other, just like you're supporting me in my endeavors, you know, and coming on and supporting you. So it's more coming back to that. We're stronger together in community and that cyclical nature of what goes around comes back around. Right. So, you know, I always say we need the planet. The planet doesn't need us. Right. So that's why when we think about the seven generations, it's also not just thinking about, the planet's role, but also the role that we're playing to kind of yeah. give back as well. Yeah. It's, it sounds to me that like, this is almost the, the, this kind of, this way of thinking the, the, well, how you refer to it, the sort of like decolonial way of thinking. Uh, we are in a place now as a society where, you know, obviously mental health is a big mm-hmm. topic right now. We've seen a huge decline in people's mental health during and coming out of the pandemic and all that. And that's probably going to have ramifications for many years to come. And it it almost seems to me that a more cohesive, community-minded way of living might just be the remedy that we need to tackle things like depression and social isolation, the suffering and the pain that a lot of people are going through privately. When I use words like suffering and pain, I'm not referring to like, you know, war zones or like countries where there's no 
infrastructure to meet people's basic physical needs. I'm talking about the suffering that you see everyday average Canadians going through where they're sure they're employed, they're paying the bills, they have a roof over their head, they have food on the table, but there's something missing in their existence that is making life unhappy. Yeah. It's sort of looking at things somewhat differently. Yeah. Yeah. I think people need that. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's exactly that, you know, that individualistic nature also comes back to the idea that when people are struggling to not ask for help, right? That's another kind of Western mindset is that, oh, you're weak. It's a, it's a sign of, you know, you're not being strong if you're reaching out for help, you know, and we're working at this as Indigenous peoples because obviously there's a lot of colonialism that has happened. But essentially the idea when I talked to an elder about it, I said, you know, why is there so much pain in the world, especially for youth and Indigenous youth? And she kind of said, you know, because there's that deconnect from our identity, who we are as peoples, from the culture, from the teachings. So when we kind of ground ourselves, and this goes for anyone, right, in your identity and your community, having that support, it really, really helps you along the way in your journey. So I would say, yeah, most definitely for a lot of young Canadians, especially, you know, suffering in silence is really, really hard. But when you have that community and you have elders and you have people to back you up, then we're right. stronger together. Right. Yeah, I totally believe that. Yeah. And how does this sort of worldview help inform the art that you create and the content that you create as as an artist? Right? And, and I use the word artist broadly. I don't mean that to mean like just painting pictures. Like, I, I mean, I, I think I think content creation in general is a form of art, you know, whether you're making documentaries or you're making, you know, social media videos or whatever, you're expressing yourself. It sounds like from what you're telling me, there's often a lot of depth to it. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the question stands. It's like, so how does this sort of worldview help inform the art, no matter how broadly you define that term, how does it inform the art that you're creating? Yeah, you're full of great questions. I love <laughs> Thank <these>. you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, cause I always say, you know, my culture and I always say by virtue of my culture, I've kind of grown up just spiritual through that because my parents were always very supportive of the idea that, you know, with your culture, your spirituality, your identity, whereas I find with some of my friends, they might, their parents might be like, oh, that's crazy, or you should shove that away. They were very embracing of that. So I've kind of brought that into all aspects of my life. And I think when it comes to the work that I'm doing, teaching other people that rest is important, you know, you cannot pour from an empty cup, because again, this Western mindset of working to the point of burnout, where you just can't function anymore, is just you know, it's not realistic for a lot of people. And a lot of clients that I take on, they really, really appreciate that mindset because I'm not here, you know, shoving down their throats. Okay, well, if you haven't been working 24-7, then that's your fault. Not to say, you know, hard work pays off and I'm all for that. But I always say that, you know, you want to work smarter, not harder. So whenever I look at people's businesses, I kind of see, okay, where are the missing gaps? How can we kind of fill this in to save you time or to save you money so that you're not having to work 24-7? And in terms of, you know, the art and the content that I create, I kind of like to incorporate Indigenous teachings and a lot of what I'm talking about today, you know, the colonial versus decolonial mindset. I try to integrate as much as possible, but even in my art, it comes up a lot and a lot of, you know, and and, in the practical sense and a lot of paintings as well that I create too. Right. But yeah, I would say it informs like every aspect of my work, no matter what I'm doing, I'm kind of always thinking about how am I prioritizing rest in my life how am I giving back to my community how am I coming back to my culture and how am I giving back to the earth as well right and and like how does one do that I I know I sound like a complete like 
<laughs> fool asking a question like that. Like, I was like, okay, well, this guy has got like about two brain cells. But like, when I'm sitting here thinking about this, I'm like, how do I, little old me sitting at my, you know, I, I work from home. So I go down to my basement, sit in front of my computer, type whatever. And then I manage some of my investments and stuff. And my day's pretty average, right? Like, so how does the everyday ordinary person take on a responsibility like that sounds as large or as lofty as like giving back to the earth? Mm -hmm. I get this question a lot, especially with the seven generations. It can feel very overwhelming to a lot of people, right? right? So I always break it down and say, you know, every little step helps, but something that I've incorporated a lot into my daily routine is just getting out in nature. So whether it's just getting out for an hour and walking my dog or just stepping outside and just saying thank you to the earth, And I always say, like, in our culture, we have a medicine called tobacco, and it's used to show gratitude. You give it to elders if they give you, you know, knowledge. It's used in ceremonies. But when you go on walks, whenever you take from the earth, like, let's say, for example, I find a piece of birch bark on the ground and I want to paint on it or use it for beadwork, then I like to, in exchange, give back to the earth. So I always carry some tobacco ties on me, lay it on the ground, say a prayer to the earth, thank the earth for everything that it's doing for us before you take from it. And if you're not indigenous, you know, you don't have that tobacco on you, I always say. If you do take from the earth, or even if you're not taking from the earth, you know, if you're on your walk and you see garbage and you want to pick it up, if you just are on a walk and you want to say thank you to the earth, my boyfriend always thinks that this is a strange idea, but I've gotten him into <laughs> it too. But, you know, speaking to the trees, speaking to the world around you and just getting finer tuned, connected to that as well can just be a simple step and just having a deeper appreciation for your surroundings and being more present in this moment. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of? What you just said was, you know, I heard so much talk about the importance of practicing like intentional gratefulness and gratitude in, in the mental health space. Where it's like, you know, so much of the negative self-talk and the thoughts that go through our mind, which are toxic to ourselves, you know, a lot of it has to do with focusing on what we don't have, you know, our problems. You know, if I just had this or if it was just this way, you know, I could be happy or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? And that way of thinking sort of consumes your mental bandwidth and doesn't leave room for focusing on being grateful for things. Yeah. You know, like you were saying, like thanking nature, thanking the earth for like giving you this opportunity to walk through this beautiful park or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like, exactly. and then, you know, to me, there's, I feel like it just sounds like there's practical applications to that for like what I was talking about earlier, what, what a lot of people are going through. So yeah, I find that very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's so funny you bring it up because I was Talking to my dad the other day, I talked to him all the time, (laughs) even though he's in Manitoba, we're still very close. And we were talking about, you know, when you focus on the lack, it attracts more lack. And when you focus on the lack, it attracts more lack. Sorry, I do not like interrupting. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I have to say that again. When you focus on, I am so guilty of that. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to hold back my reaction, finish what you were saying, and then I'm going to tell you how exciting I found that. Absolutely. And that was exactly what my dad and I were saying. And, you know, he talked about his own life and he said, you know, he grew up in Manitoba on the prairies and him and his family were very, very poor. So they worked for a potato farm. They weren't like farming their own potatoes. And, you know, my dad growing up, he had to leave school a couple months early and wasn't able to participate in extracurriculars just to go and help his family on the farm so that they would have enough money to live. And he always said to me, you know, 
Because I said, oh, my grandparents, like, my grandfather passed, but my grandmother is always just full of love. They're always so happy. Every time we went and saw them, it was like nothing was wrong, right? (laughs) There may have been some, obviously, hardships they went through, but they were always so positive and so loving and so grateful. And I said this to him, and he said, you know, it's funny because growing up, his mother would always tell him, oh, you know, we're so grateful. We are so, like, full of love, and we're so lucky the life we're living. And I feel so bad for people that are homeless or that are poor. And my dad was laughing to me because he said, yeah. And I think back on that and he goes, and we were poor, we were dirt poor. And here she is saying like feeling bad for these other people that have less than us. Right. So he kind of was reflecting back on that and saying, yeah, exactly. If you focus on the lack, it attracts more lack. But yeah. she was always, and I always say she was the richest person. And we always are like the richest person we know because we were just surrounded by their love and their energy. Yeah. That's I. So the <laughs> the reason I, I I got so excited when you said that because it, it summed up my life. Certain <laughs> not right now, certainly not right now. But there were previous chapters of my life where, you know, I had parts of my life that I was so just tunnel visioned on what I didn't have, mm-hmm. what was lacking, as as you put it, and just a silly irony that during those times of my life I had just an extraordinary abundance in certain departments and certain chapters, like certain places. I just, I wasn't concerned about that. I was concerned in the very narrow things where I was lacking. And it almost, when I was living through those chapters of my life, it just felt like there was just an empty void everywhere I looked. And I was just completely not thinking about just the extraordinary abundance that existed in like other parts of my life. And now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, like how silly was I being? Yeah. I mean, again, part of it just comes with age or whatever. Like I'm 35 now. And like when I was in my 20s, it wasn't as clear. Obviously, it's very clear to you. <laughs> so you're about a decade earlier than I was <laughs> figuring this stuff out. But, you know, life experience also teaches you, you know, all on its own if you don't have the benefit of like a, as you put it, like an elder to talk to or whatever. Yeah. And I always say, you know, I preach this a lot, but there are days where I come back to that too. And I'm guilty of, you know, focusing on the negative. And, you know, that was part of my call with my dad was just, you know, grounding me and just telling me, no, like you got to be grateful. Like you have so much to be grateful for. And then it really makes you stop and think, you know, yeah, I do have so much to be grateful for. And there was even a book that I read from Garen Jones. It was called Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life. And he was homeless. And I know earlier I kind of talked about homelessness, but He talked about how in that point in his life, he was able to change his mindset and just focus on the gratitude, just like we're talking today. And now he has like a multi-million dollar business. So it's a really awesome, you know, book to read because it kind of talks about that again, right? Like if you focus on the lack, it'll track the lack. Focus on the good and you just continue to be grateful and present, then it just keeps growing from there too. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Always something to be grateful for. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely need to internalize that more <laughs> i think we all do yeah yeah in a few days it's going to be jason's 18th birthday yep 24th oh my god yeah he's on the 24th he's going to be a, a fully fledged adult the same age you were when you started your business yeah we surprised jay today <laughs> big time surprise focusing on like an abundance mindset at least for jay right now <laughs> yeah tracy and i told him that we needed his help at the toyota dealership that we were going to take our rav4 in for servicing and you know, we don't know anything about cars and he knows a lot more. So we just want to make sure we have someone there who knows what's what. 
So that was our excuse. A complete lie. Yeah, it was a complete <laughs> lie. <laughs> it was a complete lie. We picked him up from his co-op placement. Uh, he's helping build a... A legion slash apartment building. Yeah. Oh, that's he's awesome. Doing electrical over there. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, we picked him up from his co-op placement. We drove over to the dealership. We surprised him with a... A brand new truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A Toyota Tacoma. Yep. Yeah. Very, very exciting. And, and Jay and I do a lot of like real estate renovation stuff together. I mentioned it on previous episodes. That's awesome. So this is going to, it's going to help with that kind of thing. But it's also, you know, it's a fun toy to have for a young guy. It is. Very useful. Very useful. Yeah. And is that your first vehicle? No. This is my second vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> still awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had an old Yaris. It's still in the yard, but yeah. Yeah. It's related to what we're talking about in the sense that like my experience with Tracy's son who, uh, They've seen their fair share of like ups and downs in life. You've been through some some stuff that's, you know, I won't go into the details on the podcast, but life hasn't always been easy. And you seem to have always kept, you know, a really positive mindset through it. Certainly when I was your age, I wouldn't have been conducting myself in as mature of a fashion as you have. So good job on that. <laughs> and like we get through these things together where it's like, okay, well, we got to tackle this situation. Then Jay helps us out with a positive attitude. And then like, we got to tackle the next situation, the next situation. And it's like, when you live your life like that, where you're like, you know what, you know, yeah, maybe stuff's hard right now, but I'm going to approach it in this way, in this way that is healthy and pays attention to the big picture and takes care of the people around me you know, abundance sort of finds its way to you. I think that the universe, I'm not a particularly a religious person, mm -hmm. but I do think that there's some order to the universe. I do think that there's some coincidences that can't be explained. And sometimes I've been on the receiving end of good karma through the universe. And I, I'm just saying they're like, wow, how could such an amazing thing have happened? And sometimes, which I th actually think might be just as or more mm -hmm. exciting, I get to be witness to it, you know, where I'm watching someone else's life totally change in front of my eyes. And maybe I have some level of participation mm -hmm. in that to a greater or lesser extent, but it's really fun to watch stuff like that unfold, you know, and having an awareness of that spirituality, that part of our existence, yeah, I think it feels very enriching. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the best parts. I loved what you said about, you know, there's your experiences, but seeing other people have those positive experiences or being a part of that or even a little impact on their lives is so rewarding. Yeah, totally. It's so, it's the best feeling, I think. So yeah, that's amazing. It's like at Christmas, you know, gifts are nice. Yeah, <laughs> we we had a great Christmas this year. I th yeah, we did. Yeah, 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 it was good. That was fun. With the tree up, all these gifts and even Nanak, our dog. <laughs> yeah. We had some gifts wrapped for him as well. Yeah. <laughs> Such a cute dog. <laughs> when he behaves himself, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes he can be just so spiteful. <laughs> <laughs> or very excited in yeah. some areas, yeah. <laughs> well, he's a husky. Huskies are not yeah. known for being very well-behaved animals. <laughs> They're outdoor dogs. Come yeah. On. yeah. Yeah. A lot of energy. A lot yes. of wolf in them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's funny because I always think when you're talking about like the seven generations, you're like, that's so cool. It's so funny because when I went to New York, they actually had like a surprise session where they're like, okay, everyone's going to basically host their own like information sessions and just teach us about something for 20 minutes. And everyone's panicking, especially, you know, the people who are really big planners, they're going, oh my goodness, what am I going to teach about? And I was just throwing out ideas and I wrote down like colonial versus decolonial thinking and kind of that linear versus like nonlinear mindset. And I was like, oh, no one's going to care about this. Like, and every single person was interested and wanted to hear about it. So I always find it interesting when I talk about this, how many people are like, well, I've never even heard about that before. And in particular, the seven generations, a lot of people were interested in that too. So 
I found that really interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. We just get so much of the same constantly. Like people are being programmed by what they see on Netflix. Right? Yeah. Like they get their relationship cues from like a show like Bridgerton. And then they get mm-hmm. their ideas of what their house should look like from TV shows like Selling Sunset. And like all of it is just such a distorted representation of how a life actually works. You know, it's mm-hmm. just the whole thing just boggles my mind. Yeah. But, you know, I think people are crying out for something that feels more authentic, something that feels more in tune with how we are as human beings just by default, you know, like absent yeah. any sort of like media programming or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, like when I talk about the medicine wheel, it's essentially and I paint this all the time in my art, too. But in my culture, it's like a wheel that has four quadrants and it's all exact and there's red, white, black and yellow. The idea is it's all equal and it represents, you know, all of us together in this world. So there's no beginning, no end, no one is above or below each other. And we all have to work together to essentially achieve harmony and peace with one another. And in each of these quadrants, it also, you know, has its own sacred medicine attached to it. And it also has a teaching. So it really represents your mind, body, your spirit and your heart. So when I talk about, I mean, I integrate this into everything. (laughs) I'm always like, you know, it can be integrated into your work, your wellness, your mindset, school, you know, whatever aspect of your life you're trying to integrate it. But I always challenge people with this because I always challenge people to think about, you know, not just thinking about your physical self and, you know, taking it further from your mental self, but what does your soul need? What does your heart need? You know, what is your purpose that you're kind of working towards or what lights you up or makes you happy because I find that oftentimes especially in today's society we're so astray from that we're afraid to embrace that other aspect of ourselves so that's kind of the idea of you know the medicine wheel in that holistic wellness kind of sphere. I liked how when you were telling me that story earlier you said we have this medicine called tobacco. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's the same tobacco everybody like there's nothing different about the word tobacco in that context versus tobacco you'd find in like a a cigarette or something. Yeah, there is. So the tobacco that's kind of in a cigarette, I'm pretty sure it's like processed, you know, it has the nicotine and everything added to it. The tobacco that we're talking about, you know, it's completely natural tobacco. And, you know, when we talk about this sacred medicine, we're not having it in cigarettes and smoking it. I find that common misconception. There needs to be some clarity on that. But but yeah, it's like pure tobacco. Um, But yeah, there's actually four sacred medicines. So there's sweetgrass, sage, tobacco, and cedar. So every one of these medicines, you know, and again, I always say I don't speak for every nation across Turtle Island. I'm Ojibwe, so I just speak about the knowledge I've been taught. But for me, what I've kind of been taught with these teachings is that each medicine serves a purpose and has kind of a representation to help us. So sweetgrass especially is essentially, you know, we talk a lot about our hair and like the major role that hair plays in our culture. And if anyone's watching, you can kind of see I have very long hair right now. (laughs) But (laughs) it's a teaching within our culture that, you know, you grow your hair long and you grow it proudly and strongly and that your spirit and your soul is attached into that hair. And oftentimes when we encounter trauma or someone in your family passes away, you cut that hair because, you know, all that energy is attached into it so you can start anew. It's like having that transformation starting again, new beginnings. So, you know, that sweet grass, it kind of imitates the hair and that braid. 
And, you know, there's another teaching attached to braiding hair as well. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. the idea kind of comes back to the idea that when you're braiding your hair, you think with good intentions, good energy, because that's kind of, you know, setting your intention for the day. And if you're braiding someone else's hair, you want to have good intentions and putting that positive energy into it as well. So it's kind of like the sweet grass and the hair and how it all comes together because sweet grass is often like braided when we have it. That's very interesting. You yeah. know what that makes me think of this symbolism and meaning that people in certain communities and cultures ascribe to hair. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of sort of like religious ritual that I learned about from my dad. He is a Muslim. I don't subscribe to any religion and I, I don't identify as a follower of any religion, but this is his. You know, when I was much younger, he would, you know, talk to me about his faith system. And he told me about this ritual where, you know, you make this pilgrimage to this city that's considered holy to people who follow his religion and that sort of thing. And they, you know, I, I don't know the details of it, but they perform their rituals in, in, I think it's called Mecca or whatever. And then they go there. And one of the parts of this ritual, leading back to the topic of hair, is for the men to shave their heads. And I don't know like what the intended symbolism is behind it in that faith tradition. And I'm not going to pretend to sit here and speculate. It's not really the point of my, my bringing it up. It reminded me like, you know, when you said, you know, if you go through something in your life where there's this negative energy, these past experiences, you can leave that behind you by doing this symbolic act of cutting the hair. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, wait, where have I heard that before? <laughs> you know, like it's like it's almost as if like shaving of the head is like you're starting anew and mm -hmm. then you're going back out into the world, you know, with the same head of hair you had as a baby, I guess. When you, I guess some babies come out with hair on their head. I'm assuming most of them don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, and it's funny because even, you know, not in indigenous culture, I always, you know, it's a joke, but for a lot of women, you know, they always make the joke that, oh, whenever I go, you see women going through a breakup or in movies, especially yeah. or rom-coms, you know, the first thing they do is they get the scissors and they yeah. cut their, they give themselves these bangs and yeah. they cut their hair off really short. Yep. And it's funny because I always bring that up, you know, yep. not to make fun of that by any means, but to essentially say that, you know, there's a reason why the first instinct you have when you go through a breakup, you know, that negative energy or that trauma or whatever is associated to it your first instinct is kind of associated with cutting that hair because you associate it with that renewal shedding yeah. that negative energy and kind of starting that new chapter yeah so it's similar to the indigenous teachings that i was kind of talking about earlier and it's funny how it's represented across media you know that's not even tied to that too yeah i was just thinking that because like you, you see that in hollywood yeah and it's not as if this hollywood content is doing it for any kind of at least it doesn't seem to me that they're doing it for like spiritual yeah. reasons. It just seems like arbitrarily built into the into the pop culture that this is yeah. something people do. Yeah. And now that I'm looking at it in a different way, I'm thinking, you know, is this coming from a place where perhaps our minds and our bodies and our souls just naturally want to do certain things without us even knowing why? We're just inclined towards that behavior when we are trying to refresh ourselves when we're trying to move on from something yeah yeah huh. it's a really interesting teaching and it's funny because when I was a kid I always had really long hair I mean I have long hair now but when I was a kid it was really long you know I had trims and everything but it was always in a braid down my back and I had my first haircut I would say when I was in like grade one or two and 
you know, growing up, I've, I usually grow it out for like a year or two. I chop it off and I donate it and then I kind of cut it short again. And I always get a lot of reactions, especially from women saying, what, you're going to cut your hair off? Like <laughs> people are very attached to their hair. I've come to realize. And I've just always been one of those people who I'm like, no, I'm just going to cut it. It'll grow back. Like it grows fast. But it's so interesting seeing the attachment a lot of people have to their hair. And, you know, it's a great way of identity and expression, especially for a lot of people when they're dyeing it and they're cutting it and all these rituals that are associated with just like our hair alone. Oh, for sure. And unequivocally, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when we live in a society that puts so much value and and social worth on our exterior appearance, you know, like your weight or like the the color of your hair, the length of your hair, your your height or whatever it is, right? Like there's all these things. I mean, people spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on cosmetic surgery just to look a certain way. You know, they want to change the shape of their nose and stuff like that. Like I, I have some content on TikTok where I took a trip to Turkey where my original intention was to pursue exactly that stuff. And then through the journey of traveling, I was like, I don't think I even need this or want this. And then and then that trip turned out to be so much more spectacular and so much more life-changing than had I just followed through with the cosmetic changes. But the reason I, I say all this is like, you know, we're so invested in our outward appearance that chopping off your hair, you know, maybe temporarily, you know, looking away that you think is less than the ideal or whatever, you know, it scares people. Whereas, you know, from what you're describing, it's less so about, looking one way or the other, but more so about, you know, being able to have the experience of making a donation of, of that kind, being mm-hmm. able to have the experience of a spiritual rejuvenation and that kind of thing. Like it's yeah. more than just the outward appearance. Yeah. And I always say too, you know, with our hair, especially, I think it's comforting to know, well, for me anyways, <laughs> that when I can cut my hair off, I'm grateful enough that it will just like grow back. And I think that's a great teaching in itself too, right? That, you know what, we'll bounce back. It's okay. You know, it's not forever. I mean, I definitely love my hair. So it is a little bit, I will admit, for aesthetic reasons. (laughs) Um, But no, I'm just teasing. But for for the most part, honestly, I've decided to grow it out because my dad and my brother, they started growing their hair out long when my cousin Garnet committed suicide a couple years back. Oh, no. And... The reason why they decided to grow their hair out was kind of paying tribute to him and just honoring his life and his spirit and just celebrating his life. So when they started growing their hair out, I thought, wow, you know, that's beautiful that they're reconnecting to the culture and they're growing their hair out again, especially, you know, in a society where unfortunately in the past, like our hair was something that you know, was cut, you know, in residential schools and we were allowed to have long hair. So I think, you know, especially for the men being able to grow their hair out long in our culture, it's like a sign of, you know, defiance of strength of reconciliation and healing. So yeah, it has a lot of like meaning behind it. So when I saw them growing out the hair, I thought, you know what, I'm going to grow my hair out too. So now it's, you know, as sad as that was, I think it was beautiful to be able to honor his spirit in that way. Right. And then what's even more awesome is when I go and visit them, we have all these photos of all of us with our long hair. Right. <laughs> I think that just is so awesome. So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously not the experience itself, you know, where it came from was a sad experience. But I think being able to take that and, you know, using it as a way to not only honor him, but, you know, embrace the culture and the heritage. And again, having those teachings so that when we come back together in community, we're able to mourn in the way where we're not by ourselves. And like you said earlier, feeling, 
you know, lost and not being able to know how to proceed forward. Even that act alone, like, helped us so much come together as community and heal from it. Do you feel comfortable telling us more about your cousin who passed away? Yeah, absolutely. So my cousin Garnet, so he was on a reservation in Swan Lake, Manitoba. So not living on the reservation, but a couple minutes away in a community called Swan Lake. So we had always grown up like when we were kids, you know, similar in age to my brother and we'd always go and visit and see him. And I actually hadn't seen him for a couple of years, but you know, the year before it had happened, me and my sister got to go to Swan Lake and actually spend, you know, a couple of weeks with him and just visiting him. And that was really, I'm super grateful for that because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't really have a recent memory of him. But, you know, when he did pass and that did kind of happen, you know, it's, it was interesting to see how, you know, I find in Western culture, again, like that individualistic nature of, okay, you kind of come together for a bit, but then people are on their own and then they kind of mourn and, you know, by themselves. It's kind of how I recognize right. it. But in our family, in our community, you know, the community comes together. Everyone kind of helps themselves out. He didn't have a traditional funeral because he wasn't really, as my dad kind of explains it, you know, he wasn't really ascribing to like the indigenous culture and kind of, we just didn't feel like he wanted that traditional funeral in that sense. However, you know, they did, you know, come together in community and help one another and even then, like thereafter, like my grandmother is always spending the day with my aunts, my aunties, my cousins are always in one space. So I think that was so, so crucial for my aunt, especially when her son passed, is right. being able to have everyone come together and have that community and have that support so that you're not, you know, in total isolation when something like that happens. So, yeah. Right. Okay. It's fascinating to think about the differences in, in how people express their mourning you know in different cultures and communities you know like everybody processes their grief in their own way and then that's the individual side of things like each person has their own experience of it but at the same time every community has their own way of processing it as a group based on their cultural norms cultural understandings of life and death and that kind of thing like did it seem to you you know or to you and your family and the community that this because you said he died by suicide this was like something completely like just a unexpected shock to everyone or like was he was he going through some things and there was like a chapter of you know sort of like a transition he was going through in his life where people could see a decline like how was that how did that all play out So it was a shock for like me and my family, but, you know, prior to this and, you know, I think it's important to talk about too, especially for indigenous peoples, because unfortunately, you know, we have a higher, you know, rate of suicide in our communities just for that lack of access to, you know, those economic systemic barriers, you know, there's also all the cultural trauma from residential schools, the 60s scoop, and then we also have what's known as the millennium scoop. So a lot of indigenous children's, you know, in foster care systems and those systems are being kind of removed disproportionately from their indigenous communities and families. So I think that's important to keep in mind as we're talking about this as well. But yeah, I mean, it was a shock for me and my brothers and sisters and my brother especially was really, really close with him. But I think it was also... It was interesting to see how we kind of grieved that process and how it opened up the conversation for what that looks like in our community. Because I find for a lot of people, you know, death especially, 
is a really scary thing for people to talk about. And my dad always talks about it so openly to the point where we're like, okay, this is like weird. Stop talking (laughs) about it. But he doesn't do it in a way to be gruesome or, you know, to sound morbid. He does it in a way to kind of help us understand that that's just a part of life. You know, inevitably that's where we go. And he always says, you know, when my grandfather passed, when my cousin Garnet passed, that they go to what we call the happy hunting grounds. And in indigenous culture, it's essentially the idea that when we kind of die, you know, our lives don't just end. It's kind of that cyclical nature. And when we say goodbye in our language, it's bamapi, which doesn't actually mean goodbye. It means until I see you again. So we don't actually believe in a goodbye forever. We Can believe- I try that? Yeah. It, it was. Can you say it one more time? Yeah. Bamapi. Bamapi. I probably just butchered the accent. <laughs> Bamapi. That's okay. I'm still learning Ojibwe too. So All I right. always say, give me some great. When you go to school tomorrow, Jason, I'm going to be like, Bamapi. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> No, wait, tomorrow's Saturday, so you're not going, <laughs> Saturday. You're I'm not not going, going tomorrow. to school until next Monday. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm taking off to Toronto tomorrow, so you're going to oh, be saying bomb up to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've been like picking up the language a little bit more as I go, but yeah, a lot of Ojibwe language speakers have been saying that to me lately, and I think, oh, such a beautiful way to kind of end things because, right. you know, instead of saying, okay, goodbye, it's kind of that idea of you won't see them, but I love the idea of thinking, you know, it's the idea that we'll see each other again, whether it's in this life, yeah. or in the afterlife, in the next life, you know, that cyclical nature again, thinking yeah. of like the medicine wheel where there's no beginning or end, but. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful <laughs> teaching, I think. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it. But yeah. And I don't want to run off topic, but. That's okay. <laughs> Whatever of, topics you want. <laughs> but yeah, when you were kind of talking a little bit about, you know, I know it's a morbid topic, but death, <laughs> but okay. I want to, I want to kind of reframe the way that people think about this because it's hard for a lot of people to come to terms with, but in my culture, you know, growing up, I've always had super, super vivid dreams. Even as a little kid, I've always had vivid dreams. And I remember telling my dad about these dreams and being a little afraid of him saying like, oh, you know, like that's weird or that's crazy. But instead he said, you know, that's how your ancestors communicate with you. You know, they're telling you lessons or messages or stories or just want to come and say hi to you. So it's important to pay attention and to listen to the messages that they're kind of telling you through that. And it's interesting that we bring this up because the other night I had a dream about my grandfather who had passed away recently. So my dad's dad on my reservation in Swan Lake. And I remember calling my dad and just saying, oh, I had a dream about grandpa. It was so beautiful. Like he was just so happy and cheery. I know we talked about that earlier. And It's interesting because when I come from these dreams, you know, I'm never like sad and feeling like they're gone. It's always just feels like they're still here with us. And I remember sharing this with him and he just had the same reaction like that's so beautiful. I'm so happy he came to visit you in that dream. So I always tell people to, you know, pay attention to your dreams because there's so many messages in them. And, you know, I know we're talking about kind of like the afterlife and everyone has different beliefs. So I never shove any beliefs down anyone's throats, you know, whatever you believe in, then that's what you believe in. And I that that's beautiful all the different beliefs and cultures but i always say you know asides from the afterlife kind of explanation yeah that dreams have a lot that they can tell us just about in our own lives about if we're stressed you know if we need more support if we feel like we need rest so always pay attention to the underlying messages in them gotcha so when you were talking about the varying you know sort of uh, beliefs that are out there about an afterlife you know, I've, I've always been curious about this stuff because like when I was much, much younger, you know, all I had was these really aggressively pushed religious ideologies from people around me and in my immediate family and stuff like that. It's just like, and I was very young and impressionable. I didn't know what was what. Mm-hmm. 
And then as I got older, as, as a lot of people do, they start to question what they're told. They start to seek out verifiable truths about the universe and that kind of thing. And then when you start that journey, you start to discover that there's a lot of questions that we just may never be able to answer, but you sort of mm-hmm. like look for the meaning as you see it, as you see your life unfold and you're like, oh, whoa, that's, that's a strange coincidence. Mm-hmm. That's another strange coincidence. Like, where yeah. is this coming from? Maybe you never know where it all comes from, but you know, you explore different sort of belief systems and then a little bit of each of them sort of speak to you. I found this fascinating article about the way our brains use quantum computing, so to speak, like, you know, the whole idea of in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, you know, we've started to use or explore quantum computing to just propel our technology, I guess, into the future. The university that I went to, University of Waterloo, when I was there, they didn't even have the school of quantum computing. And now they Mm -hmm. have a whole building dedicated to it, which was constructed after I graduated. So this is something that is very serious advancement forward in our computer technology. Mm-hmm. And getting back to the article that I mentioned a moment ago, I was reading about how the human brain actually employs some of the same basic principles that we use in our quantum computing. And we mm-hmm. only know this now because we've learned about what quantum computing is and, and how yeah. to build these things and how to use them. So what I always found fascinating about the idea of quantum information is that it never actually gets destroyed. Like the amount of quantum information in the universe It'll change forms, it'll move places, but you can Mm. never get rid of it. So I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, well, if there's some aspect of our brain function or or our physical body, which is utilizing some level of quantum information, and we know that quantum information is never totally gone from the universe, Mm -hmm. does that then logically mean that there is some aspect of ourselves, of our existence that is permanent and enduring, even if other aspects of our existence is not like the cells mm-hmm. in our body or whatever. Right. So maybe, you know, in religions search for the soul, the more we learn about the universe through demonstrable science, it sort of starts to tell the same story at some point. I don't yeah. know. These, and again, these are just my own meandering no, speculation. Okay. I love on my, it. You know, I love like, listening to it. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, like I said earlier, like I appreciate like every religion. I love learning about them. I think it's, you know, beautiful, each one of them. And it's funny because when I talk to my dad about this and I always say, you know, do you believe in heaven? Do you think there's a God? Do you don't think there is? And I kind of, you know, have the same idea that he has where he says, you know, I like to believe that there is like a creator or God, whatever divine form you believe in. When you pass, that's where you go. And he goes, but I'm also okay with the fact that, you know, when you're out, if it's just black and you're out, that's it. <laughs> and people are like, wow, that's terrible to say. I'm like, sort of indifferent. <laughs> but I kind of, I kind of said to him, you know, I think it's beautiful that we have that peace with that though. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about all these different concepts and ideologies and, you know, way of living, the reason why, and especially the past couple of years, I've kind of been really embracing the indigenous views and way of living is I think there's just so much that you can get out of it. And not only that, but like I said earlier, it just provides you with so much comfort along the way so that when you do get to that point of your life, kind of like where my dad is now, right. you know, you're not feeling that panic that a lot of people fear. It's more so that acceptance and just that comfort of knowing, okay, whatever happens, it's going to be okay. Like, you know, this isn't the end forever. And, right. you know, we live within that cyclical nature of life and the world around us and Mother Earth. And yeah. Yeah. 
Very cool. I feel at peace just having these conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I talk about this with my boyfriend all the time because, you know, he had a lot of family members pass in just like the past decade in his life. And he had a really hard time with death. And he was like, even now, I think, very scared of it. And I think so many people are. Right. And, you know, just talking about these things with him, I think, brought him a lot of peace of mind. And he right. doesn't feel as scared of it now, I think. Yeah. And not to say, you know, because he's we're both very young. We're going to live a very long and happy life. So we yeah. don't obviously talk about this every day. But right. I think it helps him knowing, you know, that his past loved ones are still around. You know, they're okay. Everything's okay. It's a lot of yeah comfort for him. For sure. Yeah. I've definitely had dreams Just like what you were talking about when you had a dream about your grandfather who had passed away. I had a dream. I tell my um, close friends about this and I, you know, I guess I'm going to tell the whole world on this podcast now, but I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, if there's a detail I don't want to share, I just leave it out of the story. But I had a very close friend of mine pass away. We knew each other for many, many, many years. Like we went to high school together and then, you know, we, life took us in different directions. She traveled the world and, you know, I was doing my law school stuff and, but, you know, we sort of kept in touch throughout the years and we talked a lot. Yeah, one day, you know, in my early 30s, I get this call from her mom and, you know, she tells me, you know, she she passed away. It was a long grieving process for me. You know, it was years before I really came to terms with it. And when you're telling me the story about your dream you had about your grandfather, like uh, alone in my room, I had the biggest headache I had in my entire life. Like, like there was a pain in my skull, but like, I think my body or my mind was processing something. And mm-hmm. part of that, there's sometimes there's pain and catharsis and the circumstances that led up to that was unfortunate. I was dealing with a, a pretty nasty dental infection and a dentist I had gone to see had prescribed me with a, a pretty powerful painkiller. You know, you, you read the news about like how some of these painkillers that people are being prescribed are like having pretty significant unintended impacts on people and they're, they're very dangerous. They can be very dangerous. Again, I'm no doctor. I'm not making comments on anyone's medical situation, but like we've all heard about like how serious things like opioids and stuff like that are. But in any event, I was prescribed a painkiller for this infection that I had and I, I was taking it exactly as directed. And uh, I had a pretty serious adverse reaction to that. It was causing extraordinary amounts of pain as a consequence of using the medicine. Mm-hmm. I would have been better off had I just dealt with the pain that I had prior to taking the medicine. So in any event, going to sleep in this state of extreme physical pain while also carrying this emotional and spiritual burden, it's almost as if like when I look back and I think about that dream, and I've told friends and family about this, when I think about that dream, it's almost like part of me was facing a decision where I had to choose to give up that fight that my body was going through or choose to get through it and move past it and heal. And not only did my body eventually heal, but it felt like my mind and my mental health also healed as well. And, and Nadine was there to see me through that. And I'd never had a dream about her after that ever again, nor have I felt the crushing pain of her loss mm-hmm. since that dream either. This was like, I would say, January of 2021, if I had to put a year to it. Yeah, I think that was the the time frame. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. First of all, I was just so enticed the entire time you were talking. <laughs> You're a great storyteller as Thank well. you. <laughs> but yeah, I have two things I want to comment on, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I think the first one, you know, I always say when our past over, and this is getting very spiritual. So again, I always want to say, you know, whatever you believe in, 
100% embrace that. I'm not pushing anything down anyone's throats. But the second thing I wanted to say was, you know, I always say when we have dreams about our past on loved ones, they love to visit us in dreams because it's a way for us to, we're in a state when we're dreaming where we're not afraid, right? We're open to receiving those types of messages and seeing those people. And I always say, you know, they don't want to just show up in your bedroom and stand next to you, right? That would scare (laughs) most people. So I always say they come to us in our dreams because that's a really easy way for them to communicate with us, for them to see us. And in this instance, you know, she wasn't even speaking to you, but I think just that imagery alone. And it's interesting because it's similar to the same energy I felt with my grandfather. And that's interesting how you connected that too. how I don't think he even said anything to me either, but it was just that energy and just feeling like they're happy. They're okay. Like, they're in a good place and it was just so comforting which i'm sure you felt as well i think is really beautiful for sure yeah i found it interesting the imagery with the planes and the white lights and you know i talked about this earlier about paying attention to those dreams and those underlining meanings but there's something in my culture we call walking the red road and the red road is essentially a way of explaining when we begin to embrace our mind our body our spirits our hearts but more so accepting that journey of our identity and ourselves and you know pertaining to my culture you know embracing the culture just all the teachings surrounding it and being proud in that identity and when you said that bright light in that hallway it just made me think of you know walking that red road and even if you're not indigenous just to kind of put this into your situation I think it was beautiful just seeing how afterwards you felt so much healing after that because it really and I know this is your experience but my way of kind of you know wrapping my head around it I think in a way it's you walking down that road, which allowed you to go through your own healing journey. Oh, wow. That. Yeah. That's fantastic. But yeah, I think that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's very, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I love hearing people's dreams and like giving some two cents. <laughs> yeah. And you find you get to do that in your work as a coach and as a wellness expert when clients come to you and they're sharing things with you. You hear about, you know, people tell you stories about their dreams. You help them work through that and stuff. Yeah. A lot of people, when they come to me, you know, and especially people who follow me on TikTok, I talk a lot about, you know, the spirituality and all the old things like that. But yeah, I talk a lot about symbolism because for a lot of people, it comes up in so many different ways. It can come up in dreams. I have a lot of clients where it comes up in animals. So kind of teaching them, okay, this is what I think this might be representing to you or why it's presenting itself to you in this way. Right. And even like beyond that, because there's going to be some listeners who are saying, oh, this is very like woo woo, which I always (laughs) explain it. But, you know, in a more practical sense, like there's so many messages we get on a day to day basis that aren't necessarily through images, but can just be from our physical bodies. You know what you were saying about having that headache, you know, in our day to day lives, you know, just listening to those messages from our physical selves can be really important too. you know, signs to take rest, signs to focus more on yourself like we have those personal cues within us that kind of are pushing us in that direction whether we want to ignore them or not I always hear it over and over again you know you got to choose the time to rest otherwise your body will choose it for you so yeah but yeah that was kind of a little bit of a tangent but (laughs) that's okay that's that's why we're here (laughs) I was talking to Tracy about a topic loosely related to this where you know I was talking to her about all the the different things that we spend our time doing she and I, like we have a lot of projects on the go and parts of our day that are dedicated to specific things that we're working towards. So we will allocate a certain amount of time to our day to go to the gym together. And we're just focused on our health and fitness for that part of the day. Then we'll allocate another part of the day where we are hanging out, not just hanging out, but like we're working in our, Mm -hmm. one of our investment properties and we are 
you know, measuring and cutting and painting and, you know, building our financial futures through handling those investments and stuff. And then there's our day jobs and that kind of thing, you know, so there's the stuff you do from nine to five to like pay the bills and whatever. And like you sort of set up your day in all these different places and you have, depending on, you know, like who you are and how you spend your day, you have varying degrees of passion Mm -hmm. depending on the thing it is that you're doing. For some people, like the happiest part of the day, the best part of the day is when they're at the gym. For some people, the best part of the day is sitting down with their family for dinner, right? And some people, you know, like we've got, you know, I'm sure lots of workaholics out there who are just like addicted to their jobs. They look forward to Monday where they can be back at the office. And, you know, I've met people like that. I used to be a person like that. So depending on who you are and what you're into and what your values are, like you're going to be more passionate or less Mm -hmm. passionate about all the different places you spend your time and things doing throughout the day. And the thing that I was really focusing on when we were chatting about this earlier today, she and I was like, when you're tackling something where it's like you're less passionate about it, there's other places you'd rather be. You can feel it. Like your body feels it. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. I was telling him, like, I feel like heavier. I feel not like on the weighing scale, just like my overall sense of being. It's like I'm carrying a weight. I'm trying to focus, but like I can't maintain my focus. Like I'm just everything about this thing that I'm doing right now is like, you know, like I just, I can't bring that energy to the surface. She told me, well, it's because it's you're not passionate about it. You know, like when you are doing things that you are passionate about, when you're focusing on things that make you happy, like you have an endless amount of energy for those. And I was like, yeah. that's so true, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just your mind and your body, it knows what it wants. It knows what it likes. It knows the kind of work that makes it feel fulfilled you know, there's unfulfilling work and there's fulfilling work. There's things we do for money that doesn't even feel like a job. And there's things that like really feels like a job, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. you got to give your mind and your body what it knows it wants. And you can't negotiate with that. It's like, if you try to try to push it into something that isn't meant for you, you're going to feel miserable. And there's not going to be a lot of escape from that. Like it's going to follow you until you do something about it. This is not some epiphany that like Tracy and I just figured out this afternoon. I, I had, seen this same general theme and this same sort of message told again and again on social media from like content creators who are trying to bring people's attention to this thing that like Mm -hmm. you got to do what you're passionate about and yeah everybody has bills to pay everybody's got to go to that job that they don't necessarily like or whatever like I mean I'm very lucky that I've throughout my life been able to have overall a career that I've had a lot of excitement in I've worked a lot of different jobs and for the most part pretty much all of them I found to be very fascinating and engaging. And like, if anything, I probably put in too many hours working. You know, it's important to be mindful of where your passions are and create the space to do the work, do that kind of work. And it seems to me you're lucky in that you found that for yourself and you've made it a career. If only more people could do that, right? Like, or they, maybe they hear this episode and they're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I'm going to do that tomorrow and I'm going to start before I'm ready. (laughs) But it's because I'm passionate about that. and I feel energized when I'm doing it, you know? Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying, you know. And I always joke about this with my dad because I am very spiritual just by virtue of my culture, but I am also very practical. So I loved what you were saying earlier, you know, about like the mechanics of it. And I love like the science and how that integrates my work too. But so I like to think I have that balance. But, (laughs) But I always, you know, I find it, so great how you're saying you know those intuitive nudges because exactly that right it doesn't always have to be 
you know, in nature or in a dream, it can be exactly that, you know, that feeling that you have within you that, oh, maybe I should be doing something else or I'm not as passionate about this or exactly what I was saying earlier, you know, you may have this idea or this passion that you've been thinking about for a while, but you're just scared to kind of dive in and start it. You know, that's your body telling you, okay, that's what you should be doing. That's what you need to act on. That's what you need to start. And I had a talk with my brother about this. My brother, Alex, he lives in New Brunswick right now. And you know, hi Alex. Yeah, hi Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and he's a couple of years older than me. But we were having a really deep conversation about this because it's interesting when you go through life and you start getting older, you know, and exactly what you're saying, you know, there's times where you do have to work and you do have to work hard. You know, we live in a society where you need to make money. Right. And he was saying, you know, he just felt like he was kind of moving through life, doing what society was telling him to do, getting the job, doing the things. And then he kind of reached an age in the past couple of years where he started asking himself, you know, what do I love to do? What lights me up? And he started doing a lot of what we call, you know, inner child healing. So kind of thinking about what did I love as a kid that I want to start doing now? And he really pushed me to kind of think about, you know, what's my greater purpose? What lights me on fire? Exactly what you're saying. You know, you can spend hours doing what you love because it doesn't feel like work, like what you're passionate about. And for him, you know, was BMX biking, snowboarding, playing the guitar, singing. So he really started to dive really deep into that. And now he's been like playing the guitar and singing all the time. And although, you know, he works for CN, so, you know, the singing guitar isn't his full-time gig, just recognizing, okay, what are things that I love to do that I want to just embrace and incorporate more of? And like you were saying, having that balance. So I think that's a really awesome way to kind of put it into perspective too. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Just, oh my gosh. So from what you just told me about your brother, Alex, right? Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I just got like goosebumps. So basically when I was a kid and this memory just came to me as you were telling me this story, I don't think about it a lot. Maybe I've thought about it two or three times in my adult life. But when I was a kid, we had these little cassette players and you probably don't remember what those are, but like you've probably seen at least a picture of a cassette online or something. But yeah, yeah. yeah so you, we have these little cassette players. You, you stick in the cassette, you press this button on the top of it. And the cool thing was you could actually record on some of these. I mean, a lot of them couldn't, but you know, you press the record button, you talk into the mic, whatever. You hit rewind on the cassette, you press play, and then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you can hear the stuff you were just saying. And back then that was like, I was growing up as a, a little kid in the early 90s. That was a big deal. Yeah. We just we didn't have technology that could do that. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like I would just sit there in my room as this tiny, scrawny little kid, very young, growing up in Bedford, Nova Scotia. And I would play with this little cassette player and I would hit record and I'd just blab nonsense into it. And I'd pretend yeah. like I was on a radio show. And then I would hit stop and I hit rewind and I'd listen to myself. And then I'd get my cousins and my friends and I'd do little interviews with them. No way. I'm not even kidding. I was like maybe like seven or eight years old and I was doing this thing with this cassette player. And I just had so much fun doing that. Like it was more fun than playing video games and all this stuff. And as I entered my adolescence and then adulthood and everything else, those memories fade into the background. You forget that you used to do those things. It was funny. I went through a similar, you know, sort of growth journey as your brother, Alex, where, you know, not too long ago, I had to ask myself, what really makes me happy? You know, like, what do I feel just sort of like energizes me that I could just do for hours and hours and hours. And all of a sudden here I am making these podcasts in the same vein as that seven-year-old kid playing with the little cassette player and can feel that inner child joy. Like I didn't even 
understand the depth of where that was coming from until this this conversation. I think I sort of started to start to kind of understand it on some level at a very surface level recently, maybe in the last couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. this is like my first opportunity where I get to sort of like really articulate it and put it into words. So yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And you know, that's a prime example, right? Where we kind of forget or as we get older, we kind of lose, okay, what is it even that I want to do? Or when we kind of disconnect from our work, you know, we kind of get caught in this, again, that hustle mentality of just working and working and working. Then when you stop and think you're in the present moment, you're like, okay, what is it that I do love? Yeah. So that's a prime example. I loved that. That's a prime example. Yeah. (laughs) How you were doing that as a kid. Like that's amazing. And it reminded me too recently because I was looking online and again, you know, things just manifest into reality, but (laughs) there was this like BIPOC writers program that came up and I used to like love writing as a kid. So I applied to this program. I got in and I just like finished that too. It was kind of in the same like art sphere and everything. And they're kind of doing similar work to me, but for, you know, black indigenous people of color, that's what BIPOC stands for, for anyone who doesn't know. But they were essentially kind of helping BIPOC, you know, writers and artists kind of start their journeys, you know, pitch book proposals in this instant. And I was like, man, this is so cool. And it reminded me when my mom reminded me, actually, she said, you know, when you were a kid, you used to sit upstairs for hours and I would just be writing and writing and writing. And she'd always call from downstairs and be like, Grace, what are you doing? And I'm like, just writing a book. And she (laughs) thought it was the funniest thing. Like She tells this story even to this day. She's like, she'd just be up there writing a book. And I was young, like probably like seven to 10 years old. So, you know, exactly what you're saying, where most kids are like playing video games or doing something else. We have these like very niche passions. So I always challenge people to think about that. Like for anyone who's listening, what is something you loved as a kid that you want to do again and I always get asked does it have to be like monetized or a job and no it can just be you know like my brother's doing just having that as a passion and a hobby and just coming back to it after all these years yeah so are you working on a book or do you aspire to write a book one day or I've always wanted to write a book my mom always jokes that I already have because I had technically like my first thing in my business I did was like an ebook on Instagram. Oh, wow. Well, there um, you go. So you're already a published <laughs> author. I guess you have an ebook. Yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah. so. But yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to write a book and I'm not sure like how that will transpire, but right. I have trust that down the road somehow that will yeah. work its way in. But yeah, I think in terms of kind of connecting back to, you know, what I loved as a kid, one of the things also was just like art. So it's kind of in the same sphere. Yeah. But So I recently got back really into painting. And when I went to go back into art, I was like, wow, this is really expensive. Like a lot of supplies can be really hard to get into. So again, it was crazy because I saw online, you know, there was this opportunity through the Ontario Arts Council. So shout out to them. Thank you so much. Where you could get some supplies for your art for Indigenous artists. So I applied and they had sent me $500 to just go and get supplies. So that helped kickstart that journey. And then not too long afterwards, you know, I got that opportunity for the Indigenous art cohort that I ended up hosting. So it kind of went hand in hand. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm being called to create and do more art and follow this for Indigenous entrepreneurs and artists. So I kind of just took that and I ran with it, taking those intuitive nudges, that's what I'd say. Intuitive nudges. I need to start using that (laughs) phrase more often in my life. I'm just like, how many intuitive nudges have I experienced in the last like 15 years? <laughs> probably a lot. <laughs> probably a lot. And I'm just yeah, like, oh, yeah. not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that I know what that phrase is and that it exists and it's real, and I can start to like actually 
be on the lookout for them. Like, am I receiving an intuitive nudge right now? Yes. Yes. It's so true because, you know, again, I always, I talk about this a lot, but like in our Western society, um, we're so taught to ignore them, right? Right. Because we're kind of pre-programmed to, okay, there's only one way of thinking, doing things, this one linear way, one size fits all, you know, you kind of get into that and that's what you're supposed to be doing. So we as, you know, ourselves and kind of with our stories, you know, right. We start thinking, okay, but is this what I want to do? Is this meant for me? Maybe there isn't a one size fits all, you know, right. kind of thinking back to my culture and my identity, you know, we value everyone's gifts. You know, I like to think, you know, obviously in indigenous culture now, there's a lot of struggles and barriers we're overcoming, but I like to think that at the base of our kind of teaching and values, we value that everyone has different gifts and specialties and that's what makes us us, right? Right. No one is above or below each other, just like when I was talking about the medicine wheel, but instead, you know, whatever you're passionate about, whatever you love, like that's what you're meant to be doing. So pay attention to the intuitive nudges. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The comment you just made about how like most of us just sort of somehow fall into this place where not recognizing the intuitive nudges we are dismissing them. We're just not taking full advantage of those opportunities. I think a lot of what's happening with the way most of us live our day-to-day life, and again, it's a generalization, but I think it explains a lot of North American society, is that we sort of literally drug ourselves, literally drug ourselves into a certain routine Mm -hmm. just so that we can survive this economic system that we all sort of live in. And again, like I've, yeah. I mentioned this on a previous episode, you know, I have a degree in economics and also as someone who studied law and everything else. And I have a very deep curiosity for the reasons people make the choices that they make, whether those are economic choices or whether those are choices related to public order and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And when I think about these things, I'm like, okay, well, we're living in this economic system where the vast majority of us are waking up in the morning and what do most people do just to be able to survive all the things that the system demands of them while they self-medicate with caffeine. Mm -hmm. And caffeine is a drug, no matter how you slice it. It's a very powerful drug at that. And it's 100% legal. And then we use this drug to forget the fact that we're sleepy and we didn't get a good night's sleep or that we're tired. We use this drug to focus on tasks that most of us don't find interesting or that we're not passionate about or whatever, but it makes us productive workers. And then we do this for five days a week, most of yeah. us. And then to, I think, sort of dull the negative consequences of living like that and to sort mm-hmm. of dull the impact of that on the weekends, we sort of sedate ourselves, a lot of people anyway, with alcohol. Yeah. We're sort of bouncing between these two legal drugs, caffeine mm-hmm. and alcohol, one to sort of survive the system and the other to like forget the system that we're living in. Yeah. Now again, maybe not true for everybody, but it's true for a lot of people. And when I think mm-hmm. about, you know, bringing this back to the the local message, bringing it back to a, a place of deep relevance to the Sault Ste. Marie community, I've talked about this on previous episodes where like when I spent so much time visiting the Sioux as someone who was living full-time in the GTA and then eventually moving to the Sioux and living full-time here, I saw a wide variety of individuals. I saw people on the one hand doing great work and advancing their lives and their family's future prosperity. And that was very Mm -hmm. inspiring to see, you know, and I count you among them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, 
I saw people who were struggling with addiction issues, which is unfortunately a problem, you know, in mm-hmm. our community and people who are struggling with just the pain and the sadness and the monotony of life and then turning to, you know, drugs and other bad habits to sort of like placate or dull that pain, yeah. you know? So it's fascinating to me how much of our lives revolve around just sort of like getting through it all and relying on these substances that have been made legal by the powers that be for one reason or the other to keep us turning the machine. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of like crazy, (laughs) you know, like the conspiracy theory shit, but I'm like, again, like I just, to me, it just, it points to larger questions Mm -hmm. like, well, is there a way that we can organize society where we don't need to feel like we're constantly in a rat race and then turning to these substances to just get us through it? Is there a way to do things better? Those are very important questions that people need to be asking. Yeah. And you know what? It's interesting. You said, you know, people say it's a conspiracy, but you know, at the heart of it, you know, I don't think it's as much conspiracy as it is kind of the facts, right? I mean, there's a statistic that said in terms of LCBOs in Ontario alone, I can't remember what it said, but every couple of kilometers or parameters there's an LCBO. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're everywhere. And you know Just what everywhere. I mean? And it's, it makes you question, okay, why is this so accessible as opposed to free mental health services for right. everyone or, you know, therapy or, you know, more holistic in nature. Right. Right. And when we talk about alcohol, you know, this is something that unfortunately has plagued a lot of indigenous communities and peoples because I think, you know, Western society identified that, okay, alcohol is something that exactly like you're saying can really control a lot of people's lives. And there's a teaching that we talk about a lot where when alcohol enters your body, it's called spirits because your spirit, your soul leaves your body Uh. for four days. And that's why when you drink and, you know, not to say that if anyone has a drink every once in a while, that's completely okay. But that's why if you drink like a lot and all the time, you may feel, you know, hungover or you feel really groggy or out of it or you feel irritable. It's because, you know, you aren't your fullest and highest version of yourself vibrating at the best frequency possible. That's why alcohol is a depressant, right? So it's very interesting that you brought that up because it's so true. And in my culture, in a lot of ceremonies, you know, you're not allowed to have any alcohol or drugs in your system. Like I believe, and it depends on which ones you're in, but for the one that I had gone in for sweat lodge, you weren't allowed to have any in your system seven days prior. And even afterwards, you're not supposed to have any either. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just detoxing and that kind of thing. Like I know that when I was in law school, the amount of alcohol consumption was just insane. I read about this from an academic perspective. I lived it firsthand in terms of my own sort of party lifestyle. You know, you're in your early twenties, you know, you're in professional school. You think you got this really bright future ahead of you, which, you know, if you work hard and you stick with it, then yeah, a lot of people in medical school, law school, whatever, they do have bright futures. But like at the same time, it's something that can be very easily lost because like you're in that process as a student and you're stressed out. You don't have time for friends and family. There's all this pressure. And what do people do? They turn to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And what I find really fascinating about that sort of unfortunate and disappointing as well is they get into latter stages of their career and I don't think this is specific to just lawyers I think this Mm -hmm. is anyone with a very high stress career they get into latter stages of their career and those habits that they developed in law school follow them you know so they're overworked at whatever law firm that they're working at and 
these associates are being pressured into working 12 to 14 hour days and stuff like that. And what do they end up doing? You know, well, their alcohol consumption just increases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's rough. You know, I don't know what the solution is. You know, I, I don't know how to take a entire generation of young overworked professionals who are like mm -hmm. sort of drowning themselves in whatever they can to dull the senses or dull that experience. It's just, you sort of look at it and you're like, it's sad, but in your own way, in whatever small way, I guess, mm -hmm. even if you can't solve the problem completely and for everyone, which, you know, wouldn't that be nice? You can at least put some positive messages out there in the world saying, you know what, there is another way to deal mm -hmm. with these feelings. There are other things you can do with your time and with your life that can feel enriching, that can give you so much more depth than this sort of routine that you've become accustomed to. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. When I was at Western, I took some business courses and I think there was one, and again, I don't like to say, don't quote me on this <laughs> because I don't have it right in front of me. But I think there was a stat that was talking about Gen Z and how, you know, this next generation coming in, how a large group of them are going to be self-starters, entrepreneurs, and especially in the digital space. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm seeing this big shift, and especially since COVID, too, of a lot of people wanting to work from home and be their own bosses and not only that, because, you know, I always say entrepreneurship is not for everybody and that's 100% okay. You know, find what you love and what you're passionate about. But for a lot of these people, you know, it's essentially questioning exactly what we're saying. Is there another way of living? Is there something else that, you know, I'm passionate about that I want to do? And it's kind of, you know, a lot of people questioning the system we work in and that's maybe we aren't meant to just, you know, work, live and then die. <laughs> maybe right, there is right. like another way. Maybe there's life. more. Yeah. yeah. Maybe there's more to it. So I think that's really interesting, like hearing, you know, all those different thoughts and thinking about, you know, the next generations and where are they going to be? Right. Yeah. And kind of like taking us back because I know you're talking about opportunities yeah. and I had something that kind of came to my mind. Right. I spend way too much time on TikTok. That's something. <laughs> that was a New Year's resolution. I was like, I got to spend less time on TikTok. <laughs> so this will hold me accountable to that. But one great thing about TikTok is they have a lot of great teachings and lessons if you choose to consume the good side of TikTok. Right. So one of the lessons that someone was talking about on there was when you were talking about opportunities, it reminded me, which was, you know, don't let yourself be the one who says no. And essentially what they meant by that was, you know, in terms of getting opportunities, looking for opportunities. I know I talked a lot on this podcast today about, you know, how something will come to me through an ad or those intuitive nudges. But don't let yourself be the one that says no. Let someone else do that for you if that is going to happen. So, right. for example, you know, we'll see job applications or even that application for CXC that I saw, you know, yeah. I could have easily been like, oh, there's so many other people that will get it. I'm never going to get that. I'm right. not even going to bother applying, you know. But instead, I said, you know what? I'm not going to let myself be the one that tells me no. Like, right. if that's going to happen, then I'm going to let someone else do it. So <laughs> I just did it. I applied and I got in. So it's amazing. I say this because I want everyone else on here to feel the same way. You know, you may feel underqualified. You may feel overqualified. You may feel, oh, I'm, I can't do this. Just take the leap anyways. Like, right. apply for the job or seek out those opportunities because you never know what's meant for you and what's meant for you will happen, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah, don't say no to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just apply for that. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's like I've done that. Oh, my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've done that where I'm yeah. just like, yeah, that's never going to work out for me. I'm not even going to try. Yeah, And I exactly. think I was I was more guilty of that when I was much younger and I came from a place of like, you know, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, my self-esteem was very yeah. low, but I 
tried to foolishly make up for it with like a big artificial ego. I mean, and again, like who doesn't, you know, when there's a process of maturing and growing where you get past that and you start to actually learn how to truly believe in yourself. And then you get to this place where you're like, you know what? Maybe it's going to work out. Maybe it's not, but I'm not going to be the one to close the door on myself. I'll go try this thing. And if it works, then great, you know? Yeah. And some really cool stuff has come from that. You know, like, in fact, when I first started getting into content creation, podcasting and stuff that was back in Toronto, it was a few years ago. And, you know, I had absolutely no plan or aspirations to make it a very like formal or structured approach, you know, where I was creating budgets for like, okay, this is how much we can afford for hardware and all this stuff. It was just like, well, I'll tell you the story. My buddy was just renting one of those co-working spaces. Those became very, very popular in the last five to 10 years. I was years just so. going to say, yeah, I see those everywhere now. Oh, they're everywhere, where I never yeah. saw them before. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very like innovative way of making revenue from small business owners who need a place to book. So anyway, so my buddy, you know, in Toronto is one of these people who would, he's like, yeah, I rent this desk or whatever at this co-working space. You should come check out the space. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So I go there and they have this whole room just set aside for podcasting. And I walk in and I see these mics and I see these, you know, sound suppression walls and all this cool stuff. There's this Mac big screen mm-hmm. on the table and stuff. I'm like, this place just looks really cool. Like, wow. Like, I, I turned to him I'm like, are we allowed to use this? Is that like a fee? Is there someone I have to ask? He's like, no, no. If the room's empty, you just go in and you just hit record and we could just sit here and talk. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so so we just did that. And we just started doing that on like a weekly basis. I had so much fun just sitting there and like getting to know how the mixing board worked and like kind of like looking at the back of the mics and like reading the model number and the brand and all that stuff. It was fun. And, you know, I, I never saw myself like doing that kind of work or anything it was just mm-hmm. kind of like you know it's funny the reason I bring up the story is like in the past when I was much younger I would have looked at that and I would have been like oh that's for other people that's not mm-hmm. for people like me I don't have that I'm not good enough for that but you know you start to change the way you look at stuff like that and then you create that space for actually pursuing your passions and creating opportunities and then maybe creating something that will benefit other people where people can take the final product of what you've been able to make by pursuing those passions and then other people can actually enjoy that and and you're enriching their lives so yeah i I think yeah yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that you said you're only 23 (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) i'm just like where did you learn all this stuff (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny because A majority of my clients think I'm a lot older than I am. And I kind of hide my age, especially when it comes to like sales calls or onboarding, because I find as soon as I tell my age, sometimes people don't take you as seriously, but now I don't care. I just tell people and I embrace it. But yeah, I I get that sometimes. (laughs) It's one of those things where like people want to know, like, you know, you've got people who are going through things in their life that feel so complicated, that feel Mm -hmm. so insurmountable. And they, despite all of their years of life experience, are struggling with it. And then all of a sudden they have a conversation with you and they look at things in a different perspective and it helps them tremendously. And I think what surprises people when they're sitting in that position, I bet, is that, you know, like, how is it that you came to learn all of this so quickly, right? Like, I think that's the question that some of your clients might, and maybe there's no answer to that. Maybe some people are just born with it, (laughs) right? Like, (laughs) yeah, I always say, you know, it's so funny because I would say there's always so much to learn. Like yeah. I'm always open to learning and just like I said earlier, like embracing other people's views and hearing where they come from. I think it's so interesting. But I always, you know, thank my parents and my family, especially because, you know, I feel like whereas in some families they subscribe to this 
European way of not questioning things and shutting things down and putting that shame around it, my family was very open to these conversations and embracing them and that creativity. So, you know, even from a young age, like that story I said about my dreams, right? Like they allowed me to be curious as a child and ask these questions that I feel like other people weren't talking about. Right. So then as I got older, you know, I always just found myself in very like deep conversations right. <laughs> whether it was with like my siblings or my parents and, you know, just questioning like our greater purpose and how can we give back and just help other people. And even my dad, you know, growing up, he was always passionate about giving back and helping other people like he was in the OPP, but he also, you know, helped found a lot of indigenous organizations. So the Ontario Coalition of Indigenous Peoples he helped with, and I'm pretty sure like the Métis Nation of Ontario, he helped as well. So. Okay. He was always really passionate about, you know, again, like having that balance, like knowing when to work and make money, but also, you know, giving back to the Indigenous community and what he was passionate about and what he loved. So I right. always kind of looked at that growing up and attending the meetings and seeing the work that he was doing and thinking, yeah, like, you know, there is a greater purpose to what we're doing. And finding those things we love, finding the things that give us meaning are so important. And my brother, like, you know, I had talked about that earlier. He also like challenges that in me a lot too, is like asking me, okay, like, what do you feel you love to do? Or what's your kind of bigger purpose or meaning as well? So yeah, I guess I would thank like my family for that. <laughs> I think it's really cool that your dad was uh, in the OPP or he currently is, or he's, he's retired. retired now. Okay. He's retired from the yeah. OPP. Yeah. I think it's really cool that he did that work because, you know, in my mind, and I don't know if I have a clear understanding of these issues, but in my mind, there must've been at least historically a lot of mistrust between Western law enforcement agencies mm -hmm. and the Aboriginal communities. So yeah. it sounds like he was, you know, the work he was doing was building bridges and closing that gap between two different communities. Yeah, absolutely. He always tells us, you know, he wanted to, because like I said, he grew up very poor, <laughs> although right. his family did not view it that way. They had a great mindset about it. But, you know, he had the idea of, oh, I want to get off the reservation and like create what he quote unquote at the time a better life for himself, which now he kind of reflects and thinks, you know, it's not better. It was just different. Right. But, you know, he wanted to go to school and have that good job and be able to support himself and his family. So a lot of the time, you know, when he went away and he was doing work, he would send some of that back to his parents and his family so that they could afford what they, you know, just living in life as well. But yeah, he was really passionate about being in the OPP and he really loved, you know, the work that he did and just helping other people. Yeah. And it was the same thing for him. I know we were talking about, you know, inner child healing. I did an interview for him when I was in school. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like just writing everything down. Yeah. It was a really cool conversation. But he was saying like ever since he was seven years old, he always said, oh, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a cop. So he kind of just followed that dream through until the end. So that's so cool. I mean, now he's retired, but. Yeah, he is really cool to have conversations with. I'm always talking to him for hours, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like when I was younger, that was my dream career. I wanted to be a police officer. Yeah. Uh, when I was in law school, I went and got my security guard license. I was, mm -hmm. I briefly spent some time as a bouncer at a nightclub and I wow. would work shoulder to shoulder with police officers. Yeah. Who were also there making sure, you know, everything was safe. And I would, you know, start to chat with them and stuff mm -hmm. and asked them about their careers. And I, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. You know, I guess in terms of my career, I bounced around and between the two, you know, do I want to practice as a lawyer? Do I want to be a police officer? Like, what do I want to do? And there was a lot of, there was a lot of years of uncertainty as to like yeah. which one it was going to be. And then uh, I sort of landed wherever I landed. But I think, you know, if I could go back and do things all over again, yeah, maybe I would have chosen, I think I would have chosen law enforcement over like the mm -hmm. practice of law. But yeah, whenever I hear about 
stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. You know, like that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really awesome. And it's interesting, too, because my brother, when he graduated high school, he had no idea what he wanted to do. And, you know, my family was really pushing for him to go to university. But I think it wasn't so much that they were saying, oh, you, you have to be going to university to be successful as it was, you know, you have the opportunity now to go where we didn't. You should take advantage of that. Right. But he ended up going into the military for a while and Very trained cool. in Sault Ste. Marie. Okay. At yep. the military base. And yeah, so he did that for a couple of years and now he works for CN. So he's not doing that anymore. But it was really interesting seeing like him and my dad, the similarities in the military training and like OPP training because he was also on SWAT team too. So wow. it was really awesome seeing them. Your, your brother was like on the SWAT team? Well, my dad was. Your dad, your dad, sorry. So, so yeah, so it was really cool seeing them like bond over that and the yeah. similarities and the training. And so, yeah, that was awesome <laughs> to see. <laughs> That's really cool. So really good role models in my family, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation with the whole notion of how we're sort of built and designed for community and human connection. It's the kind of thing that energizes us. We don't even notice the time go by where like let's say for example you compare that to working some dead-end job somewhere and you're staring at the clock and every single minute feels like an eternity yeah. whereas when you're doing things that you feel you know really enriches your life things that truly make you happy you just you could just sit there and do it hours and hours and hours and you wouldn't even notice so i think a, a life well lived is where you can spend every day and, and those days feel that way and you're just like, where did the day go? I've been having so much fun. And you have enough of those days consecutively over the course of weeks and then months and then years. And you look back on a life really well lived that people, you know, a lot of people wish they could live. Yeah, know? absolutely. So I guess I have a question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, that's more <laughs> um, than okay. Go right ahead. But I know you kind of talked about your journey and how like when you were a kid, you know, you were really interested in one way or another doing like the podcast hosting or the interviewing. So when did you feel that you kind of got those intuitive nudges for yourself. And what was that process like for you? Because I know you were kind of talking about transitioning out of what you were doing before into kind of what you're doing now. How did that kind of look for you? And what did you kind of find was hard about that and versus where you are now? It's a loaded I, I love, question. No, I love that question. <laughs> it's a loaded question, but I love it. I'm more than delighted to answer it. It's a multi-part answer. So, so basically the idea is I really fully just jumped in headfirst into this career that I went to school for. You know, like I got my degree. I, I went out to the working world. I worked at a couple of different law firms. I was putting in long hours. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do, going through the motions of this system, of this economy, you know, school, job, work your face off, whatever. I was doing that. And I really started to feel sort of the weight that something wasn't right throughout my late 20s, you know, from 26 to 30 or so, I was running from courtroom to courtroom. Mm. I was dealing with people's legal problems. I was like trying to run the accounting for my company, all this stuff. And some of it was exciting. Some of it was exhausting. Some of it was just depressing. Like I was feeling all these mm. mixed emotions. The years just rolled on where I was always trying to like focus on the next quarter's profit margins, focus on the next, what we call in Canada, a discovery, but in America, they call it a deposition where you like, you ask someone questions under oath and it's not in a courtroom, but it's in like a conference room and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the next discovery session, the next mediation session, like I was just getting so caught up in this game of whatever you want to refer to it as like our, our system of justice in this country. And the more I did it, the more my mind was looking for ways to, on the one hand, like grow my business, but grow it in the way where I was spending less time in court. I was yeah. spending less time pouring through dry legal cases. I was spending less time preparing documents. Like I found that I was naturally being drawn towards whatever I could do to do less of this thing Yeah. while at the same time growing my business. So naturally what I did is I, as the business grew, as I had access to more capital, I spent some of that money on hiring people who were truly passionate about their work, who, you know, wanted nothing more than to just be the best lawyer they could possibly be. And then eventually, hopefully one day become a judge or whatever. Like they lived and breathed that stuff in a way that mm -hmm. I didn't. And from the perspective of hiring good people in your organization, those are the kind of people I wanted to hire. So I did, and it was wonderful. They were happy. Their clients were happy. Uh, you know, our bank accounts were happy. <laughs> you know, like it was for me, I was like, okay, I've got people on my team who are taking care of the court stuff. What do I do? Like, how do I best contribute now as a more senior executive? And I was drawn towards the marketing and advertising and the creative side of running the law firm. And this organization grew to, you know, a small team of like three or four people to a team of 25 people, multi-million wow. dollar operation, which I ended up selling just this past December and moving on to the next chapter of my life, which we're sitting in right now. Congrats. Thank you. I found that in those years, especially those years leading up to the sale of the firm, where my mind was naturally being attracted to was marketing and advertising. And I had to ask myself, why? What is it about that that got me so much more motivated to get up in the morning versus like going to a courtroom? And I found with marketing and advertising, it was a lot about human relationships. It was a lot of teaching and content creation and educating the public about their rights through video content on YouTube. You have this space to do things differently in an industry that's still very old fashioned and very dry and sort of a way to, for me to feel like a creative artist in an industry that just didn't have a space for that, didn't have a yeah. place for that. So I did that for a while. And for a while, I saw the fruits of that and the benefits of that because the more I honed my digital marketing skills, you know, an area that you're very highly experienced in, my digital marketing skills, my web design skills, my video content creation skills, my social media skills, I kept honing that and working within that sort of creative space I was making for myself. And the more I did that, the more the company grew, the more clients we had, the more lawyers we had to hire, the more revenue we had. And I think the final step for me was also the scariest one, the most mm -hmm. terrifying one, the one where after you take that step, there's no looking back after that. And that yeah. step for me was the sale of the firm, you know, and again, it's funny, you know, I told you earlier in this conversation that my parents thought that it was just the silliest idea to start my own business. They thought I was being reckless. And I think you know where I'm going with this. When yep. it came time to sell the firm, they thought that was a terrible idea. They were like, you built this amazing thing. Like you've done what people only dream of doing. Yeah. And now you're going to get rid of it. You're going to sell it. Like you're going to just give this thing up. And I'm like, I don't see it as giving up anything. Mm -hmm. 
I see it as, you know, from a business perspective, I'm receiving a very handsome payment for the sale of my shares. But what I'm gaining in terms of the non-monetary stuff is so much bigger in ways that I can't even begin to articulate or explain to them, right? I get this space and this opportunity to commit myself to creative work in ways that I never could before. And, and just moving to a new community was a big part of that because I felt mm-hmm. like I had done everything that I wanted to do in like the big city world. You know, when I got my license and I set up shop in a place like Mississauga, like a million people living there mm-hmm. right next door to downtown Toronto, I'm like, this is the place to do commerce. This is the place to start a business, to get clients, to mm-hmm. hire people. Everybody wants to live here. Let's do this. And that, you know, one of my dreams was to like put my name up on the side of a big office building and stuff like that. And I did that. And it it was like, I did all this stuff and I'm like, something doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel the way I thought it was going to feel. I thought it was going to feel like more than this. And I packed up and left. I left the big city. I came to a small place. I left the company. I left it all behind me. I hit the reset button on my life. Mm -hmm. And now... You know, it's so incredible because when I ask myself, does it feel like I thought this was going to feel like? Now the answer is yes. And it wasn't yes before. I love that. And you know what? It's thank you for sharing, first of all. Thank you for asking. I love that. (laughs) But the other part of that, too, that I always remind people is, you know, because I feel like when I ask people, and especially in this conversation, you know, the greater purpose, what you loved as a kid, what to incorporate, thinking outside, it overwhelms a lot of people because then they feel as though, okay, I have to find all the sudden what I'm passionate about. I have to try and monetize that and have to do that forever. And I think your story kind of shares, you know, that's not the case. You know, you can be multi-passionate and you can have a passion for different things and you can change your mind at any time. You know, that's the beauty of the world that we live in, right? That's the you beauty can, of it. You can change your mind. You can do different things. And, you know, it can be really scary, but ultimately, you know, those nudges when you're feeling unfulfilled or you know what the next step is, you just got to take the leap and do it because I can definitely relate. I mean, I didn't have to sell a business that was (laughs) of that caliber, so I can only imagine that was a bit more. Maybe um, you will one day. You're just just starting your journey. (laughs) But, you know, when I was in university and I remember like hiring my first business coach and I was paying like thousands of dollars, that was a lot at the time. And I remember calling my mom and you know, I always feel like we need that permission to do something instead of just trusting ourselves, right? And I remember calling her and saying, I want to do this. I don't really know how I want to work online, but I just know that like, that's my calling. Like I really want to be in that space. And I said, and I think this person can help me do that. And, you know, my parents are so loving. (laughs) They love me so much, but almost like to a fault, right? They're so, exactly like your parents, right? Kind of questioning, are you sure that's what you want to do? My mom goes, oh, that's a lot of money. You know, I don't think you need that. I think you're doing fine on your own. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I kind of said, I have no idea how to like turn into a business though. Like (laughs) that's a lot bigger. And I didn't really have that accountability. This is someone who knows what they're doing. Right. And so, you know, I took that leap. And since then I've invested in so many mentors and coaches and, you know, all of it, I kind of just seen as so beneficial and I wouldn't be where I am today without it. But right. exactly like you said, taking that first step is so scary. Yeah. And I even remember like my first sales call being so scared to ask anybody for money. Like it was just like, I was only 18 years old. And no one else my age was really doing that. So right. 
being able to do that just like in my dorm room, I remember feeling so scared. And now I'm just like, I love sales calls. This is so fun because you just get to help people, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's just so interesting how, you know, our parents have so much influence on us and how, you know, they love you, but at the end of the day, you know, it's best for you. And they're kind of, they're always in that space of worry yeah. and fear for you. So yeah, well, that's just it, right? Like they mean well most of the time, you know, but this is something I wanted to mention earlier when you were talking about mentors and stuff. It's like you want to look to people who are doing the things that you aspire to do, who are mm-hmm. at a place in their life that you aspire to be. And generally, like I don't, for the most part, I try not to take advice from people who are telling me all the reasons why I can't do something. And more importantly, I look at them and they haven't done the thing that I'm trying to do. So obviously, why? Why then would I try to take my cues from that mm. sort of perspective? If I say, I don't know, I wake up tomorrow and I say, I really want to fly. I really want to, you know, I want to become a pilot. I want to talk to pilots about that. Yeah. I'm not going to call exactly. up my mom and dad, neither of whom are pilots, <laughs> and be like, mom and dad, what do you think about me being a pilot? Like, they mean well, but they're not going to be in a position to give me advice about that. Yeah. And they might tell me all the reasons why I shouldn't or whatever. And, you know, like... But I can talk to a real pilot and they'll be like, okay, well, this is what yeah. it's like being one. And here's some reasons why you might want to do it because these are why I enjoy it. And these are some reasons why I don't enjoy it, right? Yeah. Like, And if this is not something you're cut out for, maybe you want to think twice. So yeah, take your cues from the people who are at where you want to be. And the interesting thing when you do that is you'll keep climbing, you'll keep accomplishing more, you'll keep reaching these goals and you'll have to find new mentors mm-hmm. who are at a different place and that's okay because you know it's not like you do away with the old mentors, but you'll just yeah. you'll learn from more and more and more people. Yeah, I absolutely love that advice because I'm always saying that. I'm always saying, you know <laughs> what? Don't take advice from people, you know, with all the love, but don't take advice from people who are not in a position you want to be in. And yes. I love that piece of advice because yeah. it's so true, right? I mean, unfortunately, if you're taking advice from someone who, like you said, aren't in that position where you want to be, yeah. There can be a lot of like limiting beliefs or, you know, they don't really know exactly what it's all about. So they might kind of lead you astray from yeah. that goal you have. And one of the things my dad did when I was a kid and I said, oh, I want to be a dentist. And it turns out I did not want to be a dentist. <laughs> I mean, I think dentists are awesome, but it turned out not what I wanted to do. He brought me to a dentist actually in Swan Lake in Manitoba. And he said, oh, here's a dentist. I think you should just sit down and have a chat about, you know, realistically what this would look like for you. Right. And kind of talk about exactly what you're saying, like the pros and the cons and what that process would look like. But that was amazing because that really got me thinking about, okay, is this really what I want to do? And he really talked about, you know, the commitment, the grade averages you need, you know, yeah. the process of going through that. Grace, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've just been able to learn and absorb so much from what you've had to share. And it was a two-way street, you know, I wasn't just absorbing, but you, you know, you asked me certain questions and really had me unraveling things that I've been wanting to talk about as well. It's just been an incredible evening. I think our viewers are Very lucky to have been able to spend this time with you. Thank you. And I'd love to have you back sometime. Yes. Thank you so, so much for just welcoming me into your space. And of course, so grateful. You know, you're talking about all those nudges and everything, but so happy that you came across my social media post and reached out because the second we hopped on a Zoom call, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It was instant. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so, so much. And for, of course, like supporting me and my endeavors and my trips. So I'll definitely keep you updated and tag you and all that on that process. I do want to know how Italy goes. I'm going to be living Italy through you. (laughs) Yes. I'm so excited. But 
No, it's been so amazing and you're a great storyteller. So just thank hearing you. all of your amazing questions and tidbits was super helpful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Chimaguach. And as we say, Bamafi. <laughs> Chimaguach is, is what? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Chimaguach and, and then Bamapi. Bamapi. Until I see you again. <laughs> Until I see you again. <laughs> all right. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com.